Good morning. Hey, it's great to see everybody. Uh, welcome to a new series that we're beginning today called New Year, New You. And we're going to talk about a variety of uh, topics during this series. We're going to talk about hoping and dreaming again. We're going to talk about improving our relationship with God. Next week, we're going to talk about money. And the title of the message is, uh, God doesn't need your money, you do. So how about that? That's pretty good. I want to show up to hear about that. So... Um, at the end of this series, we're going to handle a topic that's uh, pretty tough. We're going to talk about dealing with addictions. There's a lot of addictions in this world, and we're going to just go head on with that. But today, we are going to focus on the church and being uh, a place that for some reason, some crazy reason, some people associate it with guilt and condemnation and judgmentalism. I have no idea why anybody would ever feel that way. Uh, we read in John 3.17 that Jesus Christ, and this is Christ's church, right, that he came not to condemn but to save the world. So I don't know how people have that, um, that idea, but uh, anyway, it does. And so maybe we'll look at an example of uh, why that idea seems to be so prevalent in our world today. There is no, for those of you who are used to, um, you know, on the back of those blue bulletins that some of you are using as fans, we, uh, we turned the heat up today just to kind of make you feel condemned, you know, and the hires are, the fires are help. So um, there's no notes on the back. There's nothing on the PowerPoint. We just left it blank in case you want to write down some scripture references. There's going to be no fill in the blanks or anything like that for us to follow uh, today. Anyway, we're going to talk about no more judgment or condemnation. I was thinking, is there an example? Is there like an example that we could use where maybe the church or church leader has been judgmental and condemning and then... You know, Pat Robertson came along and just helped me out so so well here recently. Uh, so just in case you, you haven't heard, you haven't been watching the news at all or reading a newspaper or on the Internet, then I just want to remind you of what's happened recently. There's this terrible, terrible, terrible earthquake in Haiti. And we talked about this last week. Terrible earthquake in Haiti and tens of thousands of people have died. And it's very, very sad. Very sad. The day after the earthquake took place, Pat Robinson, a very well-known Christian leader who is on a television show of his own that's called The 700 Club, who was Pat Robinson at one day was running for uh, president of the United States. So he's a very well-known figure. He said the day after that, he said, well, his implication was that the Haitian people had made a pact with the devil. And the implication was that the reason they're suffering this earthquake is they'd made this pact with the devil. And I have a lot of questions off of that. And I'm going to try not to go down any bunny trails, but I just have a lot of questions. Well, well, man, how, I mean, how does he know they made a pact with the devil? I mean, who got together and made the pact? Who, who can be responsible for bringing an entire country this powerful earthquake? Like, could I make a pact with the devil and in 200 years from now bring the United States a powerful earthquake? I don't know. So I have a lot of questions about that. But let's ignore all that for a second. Would Jesus Christ do such a thing? Like in the wake of tremendous suffering and pain. You know, we had, there's a prayer meeting in, in, in my office at the church offices on every Tuesday night. And one of those who attends the prayer meeting regularly, he's from Haiti. We're in prayer meeting this past week, having prayer meeting at 6.30 Tuesday night. And right as we started, his cell phone rang. And it was a call from his family. All his family said, it was a call from his family saying, we just found two of your cousins. They're dead. Would Jesus Christ, in the wake of tremendous suffering and pain, in the wake of all that, would he make a statement? Like, well, you made a pact with the devil, and so this kind of serves you right. How does Jesus operate? Because how Jesus operates is how the church should operate. Jesus says so clearly in Matthew 16, 18, very important words, Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build whose church, does he say? I will build my church. 
So in other words, then the church needs to kind of follow right in step, in lockstep with Jesus Christ, his flavor, his atmosphere that he puts into it. What's the flavor and atmosphere that Jesus Christ puts into it? John chapter 1, verse number 14 gives us great insight. The Gospel of John is such an important book in trying to figure out who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ came for and what is he all about. And right in chapter 1, John tells us this. It says, Jesus Christ came. And then notice these words. It says, and notice the sequence, full of grace and truth. Notice what precedes truth. Grace. Very important. In the life of Jesus Christ, he always, always had grace preceding truth. Is truth important? Truth is vital, everybody. Truth is vital. We have to have truth. There's total chaos without truth. You have to have truth. There has to be standards. But for Jesus Christ, grace always preceded. And this is critically important because sometimes in the church, we forget about the grace and we're all about the truth. And then we're called condemning and judgmental. So let's just, I just, off the top of my head, I thought of a number of stories from the life of Jesus Christ that shows what he's trying to model to us, what his church is supposed to be about. So let's think about a a couple of these things. How about the feeding of the 5,000? So this huge group of people comes out, you know, kind of outside the city, and they want to hear Jesus Christ teach. And so he's teaching all day long, and then his disciples come to him after all day long of teaching. They say, Jesus, listen, the people are hungry. Now, what was Jesus' response to that whole thing? If he was a total truth guy, he should have said, well, it serves them right, bunch of knuckleheads. Didn't their mama tell them they shouldn't go out into the country without a picnic basket? I mean, they ought to, they ought to be hungry. That was dumb. How, I mean, how dumb are you to go out into the countryside all day and you need to pack something? What does he do? He says, no, he says, have them all sit down. Let's feed them. Let's feed them. How about the prodigal son? One of the most famous stories that Jesus Christ ever told, the prodigal son. So you got this son, this Jewish boy, and he goes to his dad. And he says, dad, listen, um... I'm really upset that you're not dead yet. And because you're, you know, you're not dead, I can't have my money. So could you just go ahead and give me your money now? It was one of the greatest insults in that culture that you could make to a father. Give me my money now before you die. It's him saying, I wish you were dead, but because you just don't seem to kick the bucket, go ahead and give me money now and I'm going to go. And this is he goes off. And he blows all the loot. It was a large amount of money. He blows it all on riotous living. I don't know what riotous living looks like, but I would like to get a glimpse of what that riotous living, riotous, he's out riotous living, right, with his money. It's all gone. It's blown. And then a famine strikes land. And so what does the Jewish boy do? Well, he goes in the midst of the famine. The only place he could find employment was with a pig farmer. Jewish boy, pig farmer. They don't mix. In case you don't know about that, you can Google that or something, but it doesn't mix. The pig and the Jewish boy, there's no mixing there. He goes, pig farmer, and the pig farmer says, yeah, I'll hire you. Listen, here's what I want. I want you to feed the pigs. That is the ultimate of low. He says, okay, I'm so desperate. I'll feed the pigs. And he says, yeah, I'll feed the pigs. He feed them the slop. And he says he longed to fill his stomach with the slop that he was feeding the pigs. And finally he realizes, you know what? The servants in my dad's house live like kings compared to me. I'm going to go back home. And as you read the story that Jesus is telling, he says, then the father was standing there. And the picture that Jesus kind of gives us, his dad is standing on the edge of the property. And he's like searching the horizon. He's been searching it maybe for days, waiting. And then on the horizon, he sees, as only a parent can know, as only a parent can know, they understand the figure and the shape of their children from a long way off. They know their mannerisms and how they move. And he says, that's him. And then the dad breaks off in a dead sprint. Bam! He's going straight to him. Why is he sprinting? He's sprinting for a couple reasons. One of the reasons is this. He loves him so much. Do you know in that culture, 
for a Jewish gentleman to run was humiliating, you'd never run in public. You would not run in public. So why is the dad running? In that culture, the insult that the son gave to the father by saying, give me my money now, it was so bad that the community, if the dad couldn't do it, the community would rise up and kill the boy for insulting him that bad. If the dad can't bring himself, he has not, not enough self-respect to kill his son for doing such a terrible thing, the community would rise up and kill the boy. So what's the dad do? He breaks out in a dead sprint before anybody in the community can make their way to that boy. And he runs up to him. And does he say to him, you filthy, rotten kid, feeding pigs. This serves you right. You should just burn in hell for what you did. Now, what does he say to him? He throws his robe around him. He says, welcome home. He calls back to his servant. We're going to have a party. Now, if that isn't all grace, I don't know. If there was anybody more deserving of the truth, you deserve this earthquake. You deserve to reap what you say. If anybody was so deserving, it was him. Jesus, he wraps his robe around him. and was oh, Man, let's just rejoice. He's home. How about the woman caught in adultery? This woman, she's caught in adultery, right? And these guys, the leaders of the law, they bring her, throw her at the feet of Jesus. There's a huge crowd around. They say, okay, the law says stone her. Now what? Well, truth says that Jesus should have said, all right, boys, let's grab some stones, right? That's what truth says. And what does Jesus do? He stoops down on the ground. He starts writing something. I don't know what he wrote, but man, it was pretty good. Because it says from the oldest to the youngest, people just started leaving. They just started walking away. What was he writing? I don't know. But he showed his grace to her. He protected her when she was surrounded by a vicious mob who wanted to kill her. He protected her, and they all ran off. His final words to her was, nobody condemns you? She said, no. And he says, neither do I. But now go and sin no more. Final story. How about Zacchaeus? And there's a million of these stories. Just read through the Gospels. You're all over the place. Zacchaeus, little tax collector, little tiny guy, tax collector. Right? But he's a thief. He's like extorting people, taking more money from them. Then I know we're coming up on tax season, so this might resonate. But, you know, he's taking more money than he's supposed to, than he's supposed to take, and, and he's a thief. And so when Jesus comes to town, Zacchaeus, he, he climbs up in this tree. Now, why is he up in the tree? Well, he's up in the tree because, you know, he's, he's short. Now, who gets up in a tree? I mean, does he look stupid or what? you got a grown man up in a tree, right? And so Jesus comes along and says, Hey, Zacchaeus, why don't you come on down? I want to go to your house. He doesn't say to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, you thief. Serves you right. You look ridiculous up in the tree. Grown man, you're up in the tree. You look stupid. What are you doing? You have reaped what you have sowed. That's the truth. Now he says, I want to go to your house. There's a million of these stories, everybody. The church is to be followers of Jesus Christ, full of grace, full of grace first, and then truth. Our theme this year is it's time to climb. We talked about it last week. I want to read Psalm 24 and talk about how this makes sense and what kind of church God is calling all churches, not just this church, is calling us to be as followers. Psalm 24, I want to read the first four verses. This is what it says. It says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundations on the seas and built on the ocean depths. Who, here it is, who may climb the mountain of the Lord? It's really important. So who can climb it? Well, we're going to answer that question. Crystal clear, who can climb it? Who may stand in his holy place? Who can do it? Who's qualified? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure 
Those with clean hands and pure hearts get to climb God. They're the only ones qualified to climb the mountain. Who do not worship idols and never tell lies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you give us the example to follow. And if we follow your example, we are filled with your life. Like your life isn't strangled out of us, but we feel free. God, speak to us today in just wonderful ways as only you can through your word in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Who is qualified to climb the mountain? I'm going to use the whiteboard again. I used it last week. I I wasn't planning on using it again, but uh, it got so much praise and attention. Some of you are on the Facebook site for Grace Community Church, and you have seen the video. If not, you need to sign up for it. There's a wonderful video. It's all about me and my drawing. I didn't know my drawing was so powerful, but uh, there's the mountain. It's a mountain I drove last, drew last week, and it just hypnotized some people. And got a, and There's a lot of inside jokes going on, so you have to go on the, the website and to uh, see this on the Facebook site. But this is the mountain of God. That's the mountain of God. Who can climb... Who's qualified to climb the mountain of God? And, and David's writing about Mount Zion. And I just want you to know, there, there is a mountain out just right there in Jerusalem. It's Mount Zion. It doesn't look like this. I just drew it way up like that for effect because um, I have the talent to do that. So I went ahead and did that for the effect of it. But, all right, here's the mountain of God. And it is a mountain, Mount Zion, there in Jerusalem. And this is what he's writing about in uh, Psalm 24, all right? And it was for a very special occasion that he writes this psalm. So the Ark of the Covenant. Some of you remember the Ark of the Covenant. Moses in the desert, he makes his ark, right? And so what's he put in the Ark of the Covenant? He puts the Ten Commandments. We all know that. If we watch Charlton Heston every Easter, that's on TV. We see that he makes the Ark. He puts the Ten Commandments that God, with his finger, makes up on the mountain. And so they put the Ten Commandments in the ark. They put Aaron's rod that had budded. They put some manna, right? And the top of the ark is shaped like a throne, like a seat. It's called the mercy seat, and it represented the throne of God. That God's very presence comes and sits down upon the ark. So the ark had been captured by the Philistines. Remember David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. So they captured the ark, and now they've got the ark back, and David is bringing it to Jerusalem. This is a huge thing. He writes this song with his own hand, Psalm 24. Huge festival. David's out there. He's dancing. Everybody's praising. As the ark makes its way up the mountain, they sing, Who is qualified to climb the mountain of God? Those who have clean hands and who have a pure heart. And so that's, the, that's what's going on. Have you ever noticed that your hands get dirty? So like when the flu is going around and the swine flu and we're all paralyzed with fear and we're just like lathering on gallons of that, uh, you know, Purell stuff for your hands. Some of us are drinking it just to keep it away from us. We're just so into it, bathing in, in the Purell and their stock is just going up, you know, quadrupling, right? So uh, our hands are like the dirtiest part of our bodies. It's so easy for our hands to get dirty. For a normal person, their hands are filled with all kinds of bacteria. So you probably don't want to shake anybody's hands after church. But David, who has clean hands? Who is qualified with clean hands and a pure heart to climb the mountain of God? Who's qualified to do it? How about David? Was David qualified? David wrote the psalm. 
Obviously, he must be qualified. David, who wrote the psalm with his own hands, took his own hands and he took another man's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. Why, her husband, a soldier, was out fighting a war on behalf of David. He took her, had an affair with her. She got pregnant. And with his own hands, he sent an order to have her husband brought home. He says, let's cover this thing up that you're pregnant. Let's get him home. You guys come together, make a baby. He'll think it's his, even though you already have one. But he'll never know the difference. So he sends with his own hands, bring him home. Now, the guy refuses. He says, you know, it wouldn't be right for me. My brothers in arms, my fellow soldiers are out there fighting. They're dying. I'm not going to go in and sleep with my wife. I can't do such a thing. David's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. I'm sleeping with your wife. How come you can't sleep with her? What is wrong with you? Uh, and so he brings them into the palace. He brings them to the palace, and he says, look, he builds them up with pride. Oh, that's a great way to make somebody fall, right? Pride goes before the fall. And so he builds them. He says, man, you're a great soldier. Like, you're an incredible soldier. You're an awesome soldier. And he puffs them up. And then with his hands, he motions for his attendants, come and bring him the wine, right? Let's get this guy really liquored up. So the guy gets totally drunk, and he's thinking through his through his wife, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who's got to be a knockout if the king's going for it, right? Between her seducing him and all the wine and all the pride, surely he's going to go in and sleep with his wife. Well, man, the whole thing just goes completely crazy on him, and he refuses to go in and sleep with his wife. And now everybody's going to know. So with his own hands, he writes the order to the commander of his army. Push the troops ahead. I don't care who dies, and don't pull them back until Uriah is dead. And so with his dirty hands, who wrote this psalm, he has Uriah killed. Here's my question. Does anybody have clean hands? See, because if, if the qualification for climbing the mountain of God, everybody, is to have a clean hands and pure hearts, the question is, does any of us have clean hands? See, my thought was, as I read this psalm a couple weeks ago, and I'm thinking about God's laying it on my heart. This is our theme for the year. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, it's time to climb, right? Let's just, let's go. Let's climb the mountain of God. We can do it. We can get motivated. We can get psyched up, and we can climb this mountain. And I'm reading and reading this past week over and over this past week. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We got a problem because the Bible is very clear. Nobody has clean hands and a pure heart which creates this huge problem. It is very noble to want to climb God's mountain, but there's just one problem. There's not one of us who's qualified to climb it. So how in the world are we going to climb the mountain of God if none of us are qualified to climb the mountain? Let me give you, let me give you a few scripture verses of that. Proverbs 20, verse 9. This is an awesome one. This asks this question just totally directly. It says this. It says, who can say? Who is it that can say? I have kept my heart pure. Who can say that? It's a rhetorical question saying, nobody can say that. Who can say, I am clean and without sin? Nobody can say that. So who's qualified to climb? Nobody's qualified to climb. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who's qualified to climb? Nobody's qualified. Everybody falls short. Who measures up? Nobody measures up. Nobody's qualified to climb. 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, you know, sometimes we do that. You know? Particularly we move farther along in our walk with Christ. For some reason, we just get completely nutso and we think that, oh, yeah, I'm not really sinning anymore. First John 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not. We're just fooling ourselves. Isaiah 64.6, this is a good one from the Old Testament. All of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. You know, all of our goodness, as good as we be. Now, some of you don't know me, but I just want you, I'm a really good person. For those of you who don't, I just like, I'm really good. You can ask my wife, okay? Just, I'm a really good person, so 
But this is a problem because in all my goodness, in all my efforts, in all my noble desires to climb God's mountain, I'm going to go up God, All of that, which is a godly thing, and all of that, I fall way short. This is, all of it's like a filthy rag before God. Uh, finally, Jeremiah 2.22. Jeremiah 2.22. Listen to this. All you wash yourself with soda and you use an abundance of soap. I like that imagery. You wash yourself with soda and soap. The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. No matter how much I scrub myself, no matter how hard I try to climb this mountain, which is very noble, no matter how hard I try, I'm going to go up that mountain, I fall short. I am disqualified from climbing because no matter how hard I try, I, don't, I just don't, I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus Christ is the only person qualified to climb this mountain. I was thinking this past week, you know, I know that Jesus Christ was crucified on a hill, on a mountain, just right there in Jerusalem. And so the thought hit me, since we don't exactly know which hill Jesus Christ, I, I thought, is there anybody, is there any evidence that possibly Jesus Christ was crucified on Mount Zion? Like, remember, Mount Zion is the same mountain that the Ark of the Covenant went up, and they all sang this song, Who's Qualified to Climb the Mountain? The person with clean hands and a pure heart. I thought, oh my gosh, nobody's qualified to climb. So did anybody ever climb that mountain? And I read there's a 4th century bishop, Bishop Eusebius from Palestine, who said that Jesus Christ was crucified where? On Mount Zion. Think about that. Jesus Christ climbed the mountain because you and I couldn't climb it. He climbed up this mountain for us. And we are qualified on his coattails to climb with him by his mercy and by his grace. By his mercy and by his grace on Christ's coattails. Grace. We can't earn it. We can only accept it. Grace. It is the most powerful force in the universe. The most powerful force that can rid our lives of guilt. If you're here today and you ever feel guilty, if you ever struggle with guilt, strong feelings of guilt, if you ever struggle with feelings of inadequacy that you just don't measure up, no matter how hard you try, there's always somebody else who does better than you, that's better looking, that has more money, that has more accomplishments, that you always fall short, that you always fall short. If you feel that, those guilty feelings or feelings of inadequacy, let me tell you the only thing that I've ever heard about, read about in the universe that will counteract guilt and inadequacy is the grace of Almighty God. Because when the grace of God, when you understand it and you receive it and you embrace it and it gets inside of you, it counteracts. It is the perfect antidote to feelings of guiltiness. It destroys it in our life. The grace of God. Here's some verses about the grace of God and how powerful it is. Romans 9.16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or efforts, talking about climbing the mountain, but on the grace and on the mercy of God. It doesn't depend on our efforts. Hey, I'm going to get up that mountain. That's a righteous thing. I want to get up that mountain. It's not our efforts. It is on the efforts of God. Titus 3.5 says this. He saved us. Listen to this. He saved us not because of righteous things that we have done. You can't say, hey, God, I must have some kind of good status with you in your kingdom because look at all that I'm doing. We can't get to heaven one day and say, God, did you see everything that I did? He saved us not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. Not because of what we did. Galatians 2.21. If righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Think about that. 
If I kept every single commandment that is in this book, I would still be guilty and inadequate. Before the eyes of God and before the eyes of other people, I can never measure up in the eyes of God or the eyes of all kinds of other people in the world. You know what? If I don't measure up in the eyes of God, when somebody else comes along like my boss or my spouse or a neighbor or whoever else, and they're making me feel inadequate, and there are people in this world who like to make others feel inadequate. I think you know what I'm talking about. There's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of us like that that make, want to make other people feel inadequate because we want to motivate them in some way. But until we get a hold of the grace of God, when people come along and they load us up with that stuff, we buy into it and we spiral downwards. Because we can never live up to everything that is here. Let me give you one last verse. Daniel 9.18. Now listen, Daniel. This is towards the end of the book of Daniel. Daniel 9. Daniel was a guy who was completely sold out for God. In the face of death on numerous occasions. One time they threw him down in a pit with a bunch of lions. They said, either you renounce God or you're going to die in that pit with these lions. And in the face of it, he always stood up and stood for God. He said, I'm not turning my back on God. I'm going to do the right thing. He did it over and over and over. If there was any guy who could say, hey, God, just because of all I've done for you, could you answer a prayer request that I have of you? It's because he's making a prayer request in Daniel 9.18. But he doesn't do that. Look what he does. Daniel 9.18, he says, I'm not making this request of you because we are righteous or because I am righteous, but because of your great mercy. Not because of all that I've done, but because of the mercy of God. That's pretty cool. Now, here's the thing I want us to think about in a nutshell this morning. How do I get myself up this mountain? Like, what, what's it going to propel me up this mountain? And how am I going to motivate other people to go up that mountain? How's that going to happen? What, what's going to motivate us to climb? You know what I see? That we're either driven up that mountain or we're drawn up that mountain. And in most part, it seems to me that we seem to drive ourselves or we seem to try to drive others up that mountain rather than being drawn. We drive them up by saying, you got to do more. you got to sacrifice more. you got to give more. We try to propel. We say, you're going to burn in hell unless you get up that mountain. You know, all the impure people are in the valley. Right? There's fire in the valley. Get up the mountain. You've got to give more. You've got to sacrifice more. Bam, we drive people up the mountain. Sometimes we do that to ourselves. I just got to try harder. I got to try harder to go up that mountain. Does that work? What, the, what kind? When you're going up the mountain because you feel guilty or you feel like you're driven or whatever it might be, is that climbing experience a good one? What's that climbing experience like, if that's the case? Uh, about three or four years ago, my family, we, we took a vacation and went to this place that uh, the water was really clear, so we did the snorkeling. Anybody ever been snorkeling? We snorkeling, the water was clear, and we saw all the fish, and it was great. And right off, the, right off the coast, right there on the beach, was this platform, and it was about in 10 feet of water. And so we're snorkeling around it and everything, and uh, we thought, hey, let's... You know, let's climb up on let's climb up on the platform, and let's you know hold hands like a family. Let's jump off, and woo! You know, we're gonna have a good time. And so that was great. It's a great idea. So I got my, my daughter. She's right there at the ladder, and she's getting ready to go up it. She's about six or seven years old, and then my son's right behind, and he's I don't know ten, eleven, twelve, and then my wife, and then I. And so just before my daughter Gracie gets to the ladder, I'm looking down with the mast there, and in about ten feet of water, I see below us is a shark. It's about a five foot shark. Pretty good-sized shark. And so I said to my wife, I said, listen, 
don't panic. I think I see a shark. <laughs> what, what happened next? Her hand went on little Gracie's butt and whoosh, <laughs> like a rocket, right up to the top of the mountain on the platform, right? Bam! She said, wow, what, you know, what's happening? What are you doing? Jonathan, whoa, up to the top of the mountain, right? And then Krista, she go up to the top of the mountain. Get down, get down, get down, flat. There was about a 15 by 15 plug. Get down, flat. And they're like, they don't, they're shocked, you know, they're traumatized. What's happening? Mom's going crazy. Now, listen, where am I? Is she concerned about me? So my kids are hurt, they're traumatized, and my feelings are hurt because the kids are okay, but who's in the water with the shark? I am. Is there a hand? Let me help you up. Let me help you up. No, there's no helping up. I don't even exist anymore. All about the kids. I finally get up as I'm okay. I made it, you know. And, and then it was like a scene from Jaws because there was a mom and a couple kids just playing around right there at the water's edge, and Chris just yells, Shark! Ah, there you go, running water's going to... And you're the coolest thing, the coolest thing. You know those noodles that you use when you're at the swimming pool, the little noodles? Well, there was a couple, like, and they were in their 70s, and they weren't, like, hanging on it like this. They were, like, sitting on it like, a, like on a horse, like this, and they were just kind of going around in the water like this, having about four feet of water. It was like the Kentucky Derby. Water was going everywhere. Here's the thing, everybody, listen. If I feel driven up the mountain, right, because of fear, or I'm just going to, man, I'm going to climb the mountain, right, or I'm feeling guilty, or I'm feeling inadequate, or whatever, or somebody comes along and drives you up the mountain, because you've got to do more, you've got to give more for Jesus, you've got to show up to church all the time, or you're going to go to hell, you've got to serve in the nursery, and in the name of Jesus Christ, change those dirty diapers for Jesus, right? You've got to give, you've got to dig deep and put more money into the offering plate. If people do that to you, what does that make your experience? It's the natural human inclination to want to drive people to the top, right? So then what happens when you fall short? What happens when that, when that fear is gone and that motivation kind of wanes and you fall off the mountain? We didn't stay on top of that platform. We eventually got off because we thought the shark was gone, right? So then what happens when you fall short? You feel really guilty. You feel really guilty. And then lo and behold... Somebody might come along and fan your flames of guilt. Man, if you're feeling guilty today, or you're feeling inadequate, the perfect antidote, according to the Word of God, is the grace of God. God's grace. The most powerful force in the universe to rid us of guilt. There is this great verse in Romans, and this is what it says, Romans 2.4. God's kindness leads us towards repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us towards repentance. Some reason we think that, you know what, we're just hellfire and brimstone people, or we'll make them feel guilty, we'll drive them to the top, we'll drive myself to the top, that's how I'm going to climb this mountain. And God says, no, no, actually it's the exact opposite. What leads me towards God? Kindness. It's grace. It's God, it's me understanding that God says to me, you know what, you may be forever inadequate in your own eyes. God says to me, in, in his eyes, in God's eyes, I will always be more than enough. No matter what I do, God's love for me will never change. That's grace. That's grace. And until we can rest and understand the grace of Almighty God, we will never rid ourselves of feelings of guilt or inadequacy. It is the most powerful force in the universe that we have today. And what I want to say in conclusion here of this first message in this series is this. 
if you are feeling guilty today and you're tired of it, if you feel like you don't measure up and you're completely tired of it, I want to encourage you to open your heart and to ask God to give you tremendous understanding of what His grace is really all about. And that, as He does, that you would embrace it and that you would receive it and you would rest in that grace. Now, grace is something that is so deep and so powerful and so important that I think we need divine help on that. So after I'm done praying here in just a moment, I've asked the prayer team just to come up front. Anybody who wants prayer to help understand the grace of God more, they just want to pray with you. Derek's going to have a group sign-up going on in the back. Ryan's just going to play some music across the sound system. We will never overcome feelings of inadequacy, and it will dominate our lives. We'll never get over guilt, and it will dominate our lives until we embrace the grace of Almighty God. It's the most powerful thing in our universe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for everybody in this room. I want to thank you, God, for the grace that you extend to all of us. I thank you, Father, that no matter what, no matter what we do, that you love us. Lord, I pray right now in the silence of this moment for every single one of us here that you would grant us a deeper understanding of your grace, that you would help help us to embrace it, that you would rid the guilt and the inadequacy from our lives and that we would be different people, transformed by your power, filled with your life. In Jesus' name.